Hello and welcome back to The Classical Circuit, the podcast that deep dives into the intricate world of classical music and all that comes with working in it. I'm your host, Ella Lee, and each episode I'm joined by a brilliant guest from across the industry discussing their best career high, their worst career low, and other things that give you a different side to the one that you might find on their website. My guest today is mezzo-soprano Jennifer Johnston. Now, Jennifer is one of the UK's most distinguished singers, and she's particularly known for her interpretations of Mahler, Wagner, Elgar and Britain. She's performed with some of the world's finest orchestras and conductors, but she's most closely associated with the Bayerische Staatsoper, with whom she's performed regularly and won a gramophone award, and also with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, at which she was formerly artist-in-residence. And of course, Jennifer is a proud Liverpudlian. She was the winner of the Royal Philharmonic Society's Singer Award. She's a former BBC New Generation artist, uh, but she was actually a barrister in a previous life before she went on to pursue her singing career. Uh, She also has about a thousand other strings to her bow. It's quite remarkable, really. Full disclaimer, this episode was recorded forever ago now, last summer when this project was still in its infancy. But I still wanted to use it as a lot of what we talk about is still relevant or ongoing. Um, Jennifer is a very strong advocate for the arts. And I won't lie, this conversation got pretty bleak at times as we waded into the territory of various difficulties within our industry. But you know, as we all know, life can't be rainbows and butterflies all the time. And in and amongst all of the corporate jargon that's often used as an attempt to sugarcoat things, Jennifer's honesty was very refreshing. And she delivered a lot of perspectives that are often missed in wider conversation, I think. So I hope you enjoy. Jennifer, hello and welcome. Thank you for having me. So as we record this, you are currently in the middle of a long period at Glyndebourne. You're starring as Juno in Handel's Semele. Now, I had the very good fortune of attending on opening night. And I have to say, I was completely blown away. I absolutely loved it. How has the experience been for you so far? It's been a long experience, as it always is, when you're creating a new production of something. Um, I've been here for almost a couple of months now and um, it's my debut at Glyndebourne so it's all been a, a learning curve really because I spent the last well well over a decade in Europe not in the UK performing opera so it's been quite interesting monitoring and observing the differences between being here again and 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 what I'm used to in Germany in particular so um, it's it's been an interesting time I like everybody though I'm glad that the show's now open because there's always that moment of anxiety before an opening night you never know what people are going to make of something and so we can now settle into it and we've got I think 11 shows left so there's been so much interest in it not just because it's a piece that Glyndebourne have never performed but also because Adele Thomas is award-winning director and I think people are curious but also I think people genuinely love Handel so we're expecting that there will be a flood of people it'll be interesting to see if it sells out like all the other shows that we've had I hope so um Jennifer I'm interested to talk to you about Twitter because you're very vocal on there and over the last year or two when our industry has taken hit after hit after hit I've noticed you're very much at the forefront of lobbying for change at least from what I've seen 
And you're definitely not afraid to call out people or organizations on maltreatment or just poor decision making. Now, Twitter can be an inflammatory environment for sure, but yet somehow you manage to say it like it is whilst coming from a place that is very caring and your perspectives seem to be very well considered and based in facts. Now, I was chatting with colleagues recently about how working in classical music every day feels almost like a fight at the moment. There's always some kind of convincing that needs to be done, be it publicly or behind closed doors. Do you feel like this side of things is taking up much more of your time these days? Oh, no doubt. I mean, six months ago, maybe seven months ago, I wasn't on Twitter at all. I rejoined Twitter with encouragement from the Opera House in Munich because I knew we were about to win Gramophone's Recording of the Year and I was going to have to go and make a speech. Um, They said, oh, you know, it'd be really great if you were on Twitter because we can tell everybody about it. But I had left Twitter because I'd had enough of all of the aggro that you get on there. Um, Life is too short for that. But then Gramophone Awards happened. Um, I got on a plane to Minneapolis in service of a recording contract that I had to make, a recording that I had to make. As I was in the air, the Arts Council made the announcement about the national portfolio and obviously the controversy about English National Opera then began. And um, I just couldn't stop myself from saying something. Now, for those that don't know anything about my background, um, before I became an opera singer, I was a barrister. And perhaps what you were talking about my style is very much relates to to the way I would have handled a case defending somebody it doesn't have to be personal to be effective but I literally couldn't believe my eyes when I saw some of the decisions that have been given fate complete not least but also um so vitriolic I mean I found the whole thing completely baffling and driven by an agenda that I don't approve of or agree with. I felt important that I at least said something because people were cowed into silence, particularly those who work for Arts Council um, funded organisations. They feel they can't say anything. And then as time went by, more and more members of the industry who feel they can't say anything were saying, please, will you carry on? We can't say anything. We wish we could. And if nobody says anything, it'll look like everybody approves of what the Arts Council's doing and what they're saying. So um, I sort of accepted that there may be people that don't like me very much for saying any of it. I'm not bothered at all. Perhaps that's because I'm from Liverpool and that's how Liverpool operates. It's probably an age thing as well where I actually don't care. I'm entitled to hold an opinion. That opinion isn't expressed in a way that is meant to be offensive and therefore if people have a problem with it they need to look inwards rather than start shouting at me it's been a very very difficult time there's a lot of anxiety around in the industry not least because you know arts council cuts are the tip of the iceberg really when you've got a sort of post-brexit post-covid environment where we're also facing a cost of living crisis and freelancers are under extreme pressure anyway, um, people are leaving the industry in droves or if they're not leaving completely, they're finding other ways to earn a living because they quite simply can't anymore. And that doesn't amount to everybody, but 
we've all been affected, regardless of how successful you perceive somebody to be. We all have our own stories behind the scenes. And those of us that are a little bit older, who have families and mortgages and so on, you know, it's it's really not easy. And not everybody is capable or wants to teach or is capable or wants to find a whole different world to work in. But if you've got no choice, then you'll do what you have to do to survive. Mm. It's just sad and obviously very concerning because if someone has spent all of those years training for the job and doing it, for that to just crumble is 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 heartbreaking and quality music making is the result of consistent dedication over a period of so many years has anyone ever discouraged you from being so vocal publicly on these things um I think there are people who would like to say that I'm brave I don't think that I am I think it's a question of understanding strategically the landscape that's in front of us and understand that, as I said, if I don't say something, who is going to? Um, I'm also very much of the mind that as long as I'm comfortable with what I'm saying, and in my case, it will always be very carefully thought out first. You know, like anybody, I can make a mistake, but I think that it's a necessary thing because when you see your own art form being denigrated and watching those who are in charge of major organizations or the arts council try and sideline something that I've spent my professional career working in, of course, I'm going to have something to say about that. There is, There are issues in our industry about speaking out. There's a perception that if you say anything or have an opinion that you mustn't speak out because it will affect your career well there comes a point where particularly in a career like mine where mine is quite a significant proportion is out of the UK it's only in the UK that that is an issue but I understand it from the perspective of those who feel beholden to those who may give them work that they daren't speak out that they daren't draw attention to poor treatment or inconsistency of treatment or just plain stupidity actually at times so it's a fairly unhealthy situation I would say yeah it's kind of a circle being perpetuated through freelancers being scared to lose work but organizations are scared to lose funding and naturally those at the top have the power to give or take don't they it's a it's a vicious cycle your work extends beyond performing. So you teach, you write, you broadcast, loads of other things. So you can really observe what's happening in the industry through a variety of different lenses. Is there anything specific to the opera world that you think needs to happen in order to create positive change where it's needed? I think there are issues in the opera world as a whole about how we're paid in particular, that at the moment, performers are expected to bear the risk if we're ill so we don't get sick pay we don't get any support um, we have to pay out for accommodation and travel in advance of contracts um, if you're then ill you don't get paid by the opera house so you make a loss so we bear the risk there's arguments about that going on not just in the UK but in Europe and across the world um, there is a movement to change that because it is unfair and we all find it hard. 
and it it depends on where you're working but it can be incredibly expensive to pay for accommodation in New York City or wherever you know um so that that's one issue if we look at the UK specifically it's very hard environment right now because the opera companies are all trying their absolute best and I am absolutely supportive of them I think they are all doing remarkable things with very little money and very little support and so anything I do write on Twitter is never in critical terms focused on the managements of the opera companies because they haven't done anything wrong so you know there are always improvements to be made as I say in a general industry sense but the opera companies themselves are having to grapple with what is really a whole new world I mean it's a whole new landscape in many respects so um, we've got a pretty big battle on our hands actually to right the wrongs but also to to deal with the PR of all of it I mean, opera and classical music is not just for old white people. Anybody and everybody can participate and enjoy opera and classical music. But whilst we're trying to break down all these barriers, other people are constructing it's them. It's so ironic, isn't it? I, I'd say the majority of people in this industry, especially today, want the exact opposite of what is being portrayed. You know, we want to share music with as many people as possible. We want people to go to concerts. We want children to be able to experience and engage with it because we recognise the huge impact that music can have on anyone's life. It's quite depressing. You never know who listens to people I would love a situation where young people regardless of background could be presented with a piece of music and not question where it came from and just decide if they like it or not but if you come to the table with prejudice already in the system we're on a road to nowhere if you then add in cuts to music education and we're fighting against these labels of elitism But if you take away music education in state schools, it then becomes an elitist system by right because the only people that will then be able to play instruments or um, understand who any composers are, were, Mozart, Beethoven, etc., will be from privately educated um, families where there's money to pay for peripatetic music lessons as well. Of course, the, the saddest thing about that is that there will be talent out there, but we'll never discover it. And... That bothers me more than anything, that there are children, young people out there who will never know if they could have become the next Stephen Huff or, you know, the next big name in opera or whatever. The next Jennifer Johnston. Oh, well, I'm not sure about that. But um, it's it's true that, that it saddens me, but also bothers me on a daily basis about that. So if, if anybody's wondering what I'm driven by, it's that really. It's the understanding that... Not everybody comes from a background where they're supported anyway. But the thought that there are young people out there who are not going anywhere particularly educationally in be at great speed, but had they been introduced to something at an earlier age, music in particular, they may have found a completely different path. And music is also, there's loads of research which shows that actually music can improve edu- uh, academic achievement and is gutting to think that there are those who could have had a very different life had they been given the opportunity. 
What you said about missing out on the next big name in opera because young people weren't given the opportunity to realise or nurture what could have been a great aptitude for music, even for those that would never have the desire to pursue music professionally but still really enjoyed it. They then become the audiences of the future, but they also then are likely if they become parents themselves, to invest their own children in the idea that music has a role to play, not just in education, but in life as a whole. So that sounds quite profound. And I suppose to a degree it is really. Um, And I feel very much that in the last 13 years during this government's existence, um, we've lost sight of a lot of all of that. Year on year, there are less children, less young people taking music as a subject at school up to GCSE and A-level and so on. There are very few British entrants now in international competitions. There are less and less British students getting into our major conservatoires. You know, if you look back, that all stems, ironically, from the decision to prioritise STEM subjects within the curriculum in the UK. And yes, they might say music has it's always been there but if there's no investment into it you're also going to struggle to get teachers who are good enough if any I mean there are many people who could have become music teachers that didn't because there wasn't there wasn't going to be the jobs so it's a very complex picture and it's a it's a picture that is going to take a while to develop if we have a change in government I don't know how quickly we can deal with any of it really Um, but I do know that there's a generation of children who, or young people that we've lost from the system. Your best career high was your debut at La Scala in Milan in 2015. Could you give us some context? Well, it's the moment when the phone rings and you hear your agent say, La Scala's been on the phone and you do a double take. Because particularly as a British singer, I don't think I ever imagined that I would sing there. As it happened, the the piece that I debuted with was a new opera written by Giorgio Battistelli, the Italian composer. But it was in English, which is curious in itself. Um, And uh, Milan was hosting the expo. So it was called CO2, or as they they like to call it, CO2. Um, <laughs> sounds and, much more poetic. Uh, it sounds much more glamorous. <laughs> and it was a, an opera about environmental issues. I had no idea that La Scala would ever do anything like that. I mean, they just don't do stuff like that uh, as a matter of course. So in itself, it was an interesting project. Um, I played Gaia, Mother Earth. And for once in my life, I was the prima donna in the opera. So I had dressing room number one in La Scala and they gave me lots of flowers and it was an extraordinary experience. But I think it wasn't even about the piece, really. In rehearsals, you're in a room somewhere. Uh, La Scala has a rehearsal venue that's a little bit away from the opera house. But the moment that I put my foot on the stage and looked out into that very distinctive, very famous auditorium. My knees slightly went because I felt overwhelmed actually by the history, the pressure, the all of it. Um, and I, it was a massive privilege and I'll never forget it. Mm. 
obviously it's one of the most important theatres for opera globally. Had it been a specific ambition of yours to sing there? Well, no, because you never think something like that's going to happen. And I've worked there since and I I still felt it. (laughs) I have the posters at home. When you're singing a major role, they will give you the big scale poster that was outside the opera house to bring home and have framed. I see those, you know, obviously daily when I'm at home. Um, It's, I'm funny probably. I I don't know if other singers are like this, but I've never had a bucket list. Just the personality I am, I think. I don't ever have any expectations. I just sort of deal with what's in front of me when it comes. But I genuinely never imagined that that would come. When it did come, did you feel a sort of heightened sense of responsibility because of the size of the venue and the stature? Size of the venue, size of the role, size of responsibility for contemporary music in that setting because that's not somewhere that does a lot of it. Sense of responsibility for a British person invading the territory of an Italian opera company. Obviously, Brits have sung there before, but there's just very few. So I felt that sort of weight of responsibility. And then I had to remind myself not to be cowed by it, that I had to remind myself that actually I had a right to be there. They wanted me there. Therefore, I had to go and do my best job, but I couldn't be intimidated by the setting. It was quite a good lesson, actually, because it it's very easy to feel immense pressure but you have to block it out and you have to just say no look it's just another day at work I've just got to get up and do my best well that's very level-headed that's a lot of individual pressures for one person to feel all at once um you have this real affinity for composers like Mahler and Wagner but you have also given a lot of premieres over the course of your career How do you find the process of learning and working with something that is completely new? It's an interesting thing. Um, Some people are scared of contemporary music, but some of the best things I've done have been contemporary music. I mean, I I did a world premiere by Du Yun, the Pulitzer Prize winning composer in London with the Aurora Orchestra. And I think it was one of the best nights of my whole career. And it was an extraordinary thing the piece that she wrote. It also involved a Pakistani raga singer called Ali Seti, who has become a friend. And he's a mega star across the world in his world of music. And um, we found it brilliant working together, singing together with two completely different traditions colliding. And there was so much to learn from that process. And there was also in a weird way, so much freedom compared to the, the sort of tightly drawn lines of classical music that you find in earlier music. I say earlier music, I don't mean early music. I mean like, you know, even Wagner and so on. Um, contemporary music can be cross-genre in the most positive of ways. So I was really amazed by that whole thing. And I long, I think most performers would long for more moments like that in a career. They don't come along very often. And when they do, I think they're quite special, Um, you know, and I'm sure when I'm in my dotage and I'm lying in bed in a care home somewhere, I'll make a list of the things that really mattered and that will be one of them for sure. Your worst career low was when you were sacked by an opera company for being, quote unquote, too fat. 
My stomach completely twisted at this. What happened? So uh, I'm reluctant to name the company in this current climate in particular because it was a long time ago and it wouldn't happen now. When was it? Um, So it was about 2005 maybe. You know, we're talking about sort of almost 20 years ago and times have changed now, at least to a significant enough degree. It was a new opera that was being written and I had been cast as the leading lady and a very, very famous baritone was cast as the leading man, married couple. The character I was going to play would have been youngish, uh, a drunkard, for want of a better word, an alcoholic. And it was being directed by a female film director. And she asked to do a working session with us. So we went and did it. And then half an hour later, some of the phone rang and my agent said, I'm really sorry, they've, you've, you've been fired because she says you're too fat to play a young, attractive woman. So because the opera was going to be seen not just at the company where they'd removed me, it was going to travel, including to a very, very famous opera house in America. And amongst other things, you know, would have come with a recording, all sorts of things. Um, I thought my career was over that day. And the hard thing is, and the ironic thing is that I'm just under six foot tall. And at that point, I was a size 16, which is average and probably slimmer than average for somebody who's as tall as I am. So um, I just couldn't understand it because... It didn't seem to matter how talented I might be or how well I sang it or how well I act or it was entirely down to the fact that I wasn't a size eight. Now, coming from the film world, that is what the film world even now is like because if you look at film stars generally, they're tiny, but they're not just tiny in clothing size, they're tiny in height, but you cannot produce a voice like mine out of a body that's tiny. So um, I just had to accept it, really, and, and there was no going back. I couldn't, couldn't do anything about it. Those who were in management at the time in the company are shamed by it now. There, there were still a couple who were in post, and they felt powerless to do anything about it because those who were in control have gone, and in a couple of cases, long gone. So that's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not a situation which would happen today. It just typifies though the vulnerability again of young performers that you're a pawn in a much bigger machine but also really opera companies have in fact learned that directors shouldn't have the final say on some things particularly if they come from out of opera from a different genre um we are what we are but also our bodies are the way they are in order to produce the sound that they do and you know, obviously in later years, I started singing the biggest repertoire. So I have to be able to fill a theatre that's huge. And nobody cares what I look like, actually, because if you're costumed and I'm far away from you, I mean, you, know, you don't see somebody like that. But we're now in an age of HDTV, so it's a tricky one there too. We've, we do get abuse sometimes of about people being cast in certain roles and looking a certain way, but... 
I think the best advocate for this stuff is Jamie Barton, who basically says, look, opera should be a mirror on society just because there are larger people doesn't mean that they're not entitled to fall in love or have a life where they're involved in a story that's as big as an operatic story and whatever. And it's a bit like sexuality as well. And it's a bit like skin color and it's a bit like race. You know, the, we've moved on, thank goodness. Uh, my story is no worse. In fact, it's probably not surprising really to anybody that's worked in the industry for the time that I've been around. But, you know, we all know that casting directors in particular and some directors have held prejudice against casting certain types of people, regardless of, you know, whatever the tradition is with that opera that they imagine the character to look a certain way. And then if you're not in that box, then you're not welcome or haven't been welcome. But as I say, I'm hoping that, you know, things have improved. I mean, the other thing is that the implication that as a woman, you can't be in any way curvy to portray a young, attractive woman is also incredibly offensive because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if you run with the idea that opera should be a mirror on society, then what happened to me was very wrong. I mean, that's an understatement. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. The The comment on opera being a mirror on society is especially interesting. Although it could be better still, things have moved on a lot. And I guess I'm glad that you feel that specifically the opera world has moved on too, because that is just awful. I mean, um, the thing you never are able to do is sit in the room after you've done an audition and hear what they've got to say about you. So if a casting panel has an inherent prejudice in it, how would you know? You just know that you didn't get the job. Um, the hardest thing has been knowing that that happened to me, that actually it would have happened to a, a number of others, I'm sure, over time. But also, uh, you know, I've got friends across the industry and I know that it's happened to a number of people for a number of different reasons, you know. Do you think if someone's voice and acting capabilities and whatnot are otherwise perfect for the role in question, do you think that there is a definitive point at which it stops being an artistic decision so as to make that character as believable as possible and just becomes discriminatory? Oh, I mean, it's always been discriminatory. It's justified on the basis of artistic choice. The concept of the fat lady singing has a, unfortunately always been a, a sort of caricature of what an opera singer is and has been. So, you know, the Pavarotti's of the world and so on is what people traditionally have considered opera to have been. I mean, but it's what modern contemporary performers would call park and bark like we don't do that we're fully inhabiting characters when we go on stage and we move you know the irony is that just because you're big doesn't mean you're not fit it doesn't mean you're not capable it doesn't mean you don't have stamina it's just that some directors and some casting directors have distaste for that for, for things looking a particular way so are we there yet probably not Will we get there? Hopefully. Um, but it's also about boards employing the right 
members of staff to bring a company on like that. But I definitely have hope because I think as we're coming into an age where internet access and broadcasting of shows and so on, we're we're genuinely seeing a broader range of performers. And I think the other thing that I find weird is the fact that opera is in any event, the suspension of reality. It, no matter what anyone says, if you've got a mezzo playing a trouser role, that's a suspension of reality. So why should it matter what the color of their skin is or where they're from in the world or are they heavier than another person in their voice? You know, it's already suspending reality. So why should it be that that's such a problem? That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Do you think that that's a solution then? At, at, at those highest levels, hiring people that have more open perspectives. Obviously, in a regular concert setting, it's much easier to argue that the music is the most important thing. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what you look like. But with opera, there is that very obvious visual element, which leaves a lot of room for grey areas. The trouble is that you will get people who say opera is a visual art form. And I don't want to see two fat people pretending to fall in love with each other because people carry prejudice, whether you like it or not. So, of course, there are probably roles which you may struggle to see, let's say, an older lady play uh, Susanna or whatever. You wouldn't do that. There are still limits within casting where you want to put singers into that, where they do look credible, but... Whether somebody's skin colour is relevant in that, I don't believe it is. It's not about that. It's about inhabiting the character. You know, frankly, if you can sing a role and if you're a really good singer and you can cope with it, costuming is an amazing thing. They can do any number of things. I think we just need to shrug off some of the prejudice and preconceptions. Opera traditionally was one way, but does it have to remain static like that opera was mainly the popular music of its time when it was written so should we be innovative yes but should we be innovative in the right way yes do we need to perform in car parks all the time no (laughs) Uh, i suppose what someone perceives as normal is what they are used to seeing around them isn't it and it feels like we could be on the cusp of big change at the moment which loads of people are embracing but there's much more resistance from people that have been comfortable with what has been traditional for a really long time and there's a place for traditional too i mean you can retain as many traditional productions of things as you like but at the end of the day is it going to bring in a new audience if all they ever see is bohem there has to be a balance and so in making that balance you then start to look at the issue of reflecting society back on itself and that's the other thing is that opera houses opera companies tend to be responsible for the repeat casting of certain people uh each place where there's an opera company has its own audience and it would be nice to feel that they were enlightened enough to deal with bringing in the audience where they're situated and appealing to that demographic whatever that is you know there will be places that have conservative audiences so it may be more difficult to push the boundaries but in places where there is a broad-minded population that should be able to be reflected on stage so 
If we bring it back to your experience, this time that you were sacked, is that something that still lives in the back of your mind? I don't think I've had an issue weight-wise since moving into heavier repertoire. Um, But I have had comments. Somebody asked me at a major reception in front of other people when my baby was due. Um, I just turned to him and said, "Um, no, I'm just fat. And he didn't know what to do with himself. He would look like he was going to die. Um, and I was also asked that question live on radio by a by an interviewer. And I terminated the interview, having said exactly what I said to the other chap. And that was in Europe. That wasn't in this country. But yeah, I mean, I carry some weight on my stomach. But also underneath that is a huge muscular set of abs, which give me a lot of the power that I have. So... I've spoken to actually quite a few of my friends who sing the same repertoire as me. We're all the same shape and we all have very overdeveloped muscular structures underneath, uh, in my case, a bit of flab as well. So it's never going to go away because that's how my body works to again produce the sound that I do. So it's maddening that there should be any judgment about that. Do you have any advice for younger singers around potential situations like this? Perhaps graduates who are about to enter the professional world. Um, Never be afraid to speak out. The later you get in your life, what you don't want is to look back and feel regret that you didn't. Because now we're now in an environment where it is okay to call stuff out like that. I understand the fear of, of raising issues like that, but I lost that work anyway. I just had to swallow it. So I think we are getting to the point where it's okay to say that's not okay. That behavior is not okay. And if you do make a success of a career in singing or music, classical music generally, you will also find that even when you make it into what you perceive to be your end goal, which is international career and so on, it comes with a price. And that price is that you will be traveling an awful lot. It's very hard. You don't have a home even in some cases. If you aren't sure about who you are in that equation, you will soon lose sight if you're never at home and so on. So investigating who you are and deciding who you are as an artist, as a person, as a, a human being, you know, looking at what you want out of life, actually, the sooner you do that, the healthier it will be for you and the the easier you'll find it to navigate through this quite difficult world. Okay, last question before we wrap up and it's time for our end segment, Closed Circuit, which means that you're answering a question from a previous guest. Your question is, to what degree are there parallels between musicians and sports players? Um... In my own case, I suppose you would see a career like mine as being a bit like a an elite sports person. You know, I train hard and I'm fighting for an end goal, but I am not actually competing against other people to a degree. If anything, I'm competing against myself, I would say. So it is different. It's not the same thing. And whilst elite sports... And elite music, for want of a better word, I hate using it in the context of music, you're all 
aiming for the, the best you can be and so on. The fact is that music is more egalitarian than that. So I think music is more similar to grassroots sport than it is to Olympic sport, strangely, because a lot more people can participate in music, whether it's as an audience member or as a, a professional or whatever. Just because we're professionals as well doesn't mean that we are seeking only one end goal because art is broader than that. So we want to reach as many people as possible. We want to inspire people, but we're not just inspiring them to win a gold medal. We're inspiring them to be creative themselves and apply creativity into their own life and innovate as well. So on the surface, it's very easy to say they're very similar, but I do think they're different. And I think that the single-mindedness of sports people can not necessarily be an advantage in the arts. We are better and we're much stronger when we're open-minded and are also inspired by a whole range of things rather than coping with running 100 metres as fast as we can. There we have it, a brilliant way to bring our chat to a close. Jennifer, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Classical Circuit. If you enjoyed it, I would be really grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe as this will help other people to find out about it. You can also follow us on Instagram for more updates at The Classical Circuit. And this podcast is also available on The Violin Channel's website, which is theviolinchannel.com. Thank you again and see you next time.